Well, kids, uh, for most of you, school either started this past week or it starts in the next two weeks. I'm sorry to say. Uh, But all of that has gotten me thinking about how teachers teach. Okay, Have you ever thought about how teachers teach? Even if you've never thought about it before, I I bet you know the basic philosophy of of how teachers teach. So let me ask you a couple of questions to to show you and to get us all thinking in this direction. Uh, In the very beginning of kindergarten, okay, in your first ever English and language arts class, What's the very first thing that a teacher teaches you? Is it Shakespeare? No. What is it? Somebody tell me. Yes. The letters of the alphabet. They teach you the ABCs, right? Before you begin to read, you have to learn the alphabet. That's perfect. Okay. What about in math? Okay. In your kindergarten math class, uh, is the first thing that your teacher teaches you calculus? No. What is it? Yes, Mr. Hopkins. Um, uh, What's that? Numbers. Numbers. That's right. They teach you how to count. Before you can even add or subtract, you have to learn how to count. And you have to learn your numbers. Um, This is how teachers teach. They begin with the basics. And then they build a foundation On top of that, it's not just school where teachers do this. The teachers do this in every area of learning. So if you've ever been on a soccer team, who's ever been on a soccer team? Is the first thing they teach you on a soccer team how to do a bicycle kick over your head? No. What do they teach you how to do? Dribble, not use your hands. The basics, the fundamentals. Or who's ever been in a ballet class before? The first time you show up for a ballet class, is the first thing they teach you how to do pirouette? No. They teach you... First position. Who's impressed that I know first position? I had an older sister and she put me through a lot of ballet classes, okay? Before you jump, you have to learn how to stand. These are the the basics of learning. It's true for all forms, even for adults. Uh, Don's a lawyer. Don, the first thing you learned when you went to law school, I bet it wasn't advanced court litigation techniques, was it? What's the first thing that they teach you? Contracts and the like, basics of the law, right? I don't think any of our doctors are here, but I'm sure. Um, well, on the first day of medical school, they don't teach you how to do surgery, do they? What do they teach you? Anatomy. You've got to learn about the body before you have to learn how to do things with the body. This is true of everything. When I first went to seminary, they did not start with like deep theology. They started with the books of the Bible. That was literally my first test in seminary, was memorizing the books of the Bible. It's true of every field of study that you'll ever enter into. You always have to learn the basics before you learn the complicated details. And it is only then, after you've learned the fundamentals, that the specifics can be built upon and added to that foundational knowledge. Which leads me to my final question this morning. And this is for the kids and the adults alike. When you are learning to live wisely in this world, what's the first thing that you need to know? What are the foundational teachings of wise living? Where does it begin? 
That's what we're going to be talking about this morning as we continue in our sermon series in the book of Proverbs. And so kids, on your activity sheets, you've got some questions that will help you follow along as you listen. And for everyone here, regardless of your age, if you have a Bible, I want to invite you to open it with me to Proverbs chapter 1. Beginning in verse 8, as we consider the foundational instructions for living a life of wisdom. Now, throughout the first nine chapters of this book of Proverbs, which is most of what we'll be covering and looking at in this series, Solomon is laying a foundation uh, or helping to build a framework upon which all of his other wisdom can be hung. So he's giving us the basics here, the, the matters of first importance, the ABCs of wise living, if you will. In the back half of the book, there are all kinds of specific applications for how to live a wise life in all kinds of various circumstances. But here in the beginning, he starts with the foundation upon which all of that other wisdom can be built. And in verses 8 and 9, Solomon begins laying that foundation by addressing his son, inviting him to hear his father's instruction and to not forsake his mother's teaching. Because they will be for him a graceful garland for his head and pendants for his neck. What Solomon is saying here is that this wisdom will help his son to live a good life. It will help him to be blessed and to experience honor. And in this address from Solomon to his son, what we have is an appeal that is both deeply personal and conveniently anonymous. It's personal in that you can hear the heart of the father in this address to his son. You can hear Solomon almost pleading with his child that he would heed this advice and that he would he would listen and and take to heart his parents instructions. He wants this for his child deeply. This address is very personal in that way, but it is also conveniently anonymous. We know that Solomon had at least two sons who were named in the scriptures. And given that he had 700 wives and 300 concubines, I am almost certain that he had more than those two children. And yet, here in this exhortation, we have no idea exactly who it's written to. It's anonymous, almost generic in a sense. Which means that it could be applied to any one of Solomon's sons. Or from any father to any son. Or for that matter, from any parent to any child. Or from God our Father to all of His children. In this passage, we have a glimpse into Solomon's heart towards his son for sure. But you also have a glimpse into your heavenly Father's heart towards you. And the longing that He has for you to know His ways and to follow His instructions so that your life may go well and that you might flourish. I want to pause here right at the very beginning of this this book of instruction and ask, is that what you want? may seem an absurd question to ask, but I actually think it's important for us to hear and to personally acknowledge and respond to it. Do you want for yourself 
what God wants for you. If you do, then hear his instructions to you. And do not forsake his teaching. The first instruction that this wise father gives in verse 10 is that if sinners entice you, do not consent. One of the most foundational instructions for life that you can ever receive is that if you want to live a life of wisdom that is blessed by God, if you want your life to go well, do not be enticed by sinners into sin. This is the wise father's first and foundational instruction to his son. And it is God's instruction to you. Now the way that this advice is given is that the father bookends this overarching warning not to be enticed by sin. In verses 10 and 15, bookends it. And then in between, he gives a very specific example of this in regard to the pursuit of unjust gain in verses 11 through 14. Now this morning, I'm going to just deal with the broad and general warning not to be enticed by sinners. Rather than dealing with this specific example that's given of of pursuing unjust gain. And the reason I'm going to do that is because the pursuit of unjust gain is just one way that we can be enticed by sinners into sin. And that may very well be applicable to us at certain times of certain ones of our lives. But the overarching principle, not to be enticed by sinners into sin, well that can and should be applied to to any aspect of temptation towards sin that we will face every day of our lives. Whether it's the temptation to drink or to drug or to sex or to lying or to cheating or to stealing or to gossip or to slander or to cursing or to greed or to gluttony or to laziness or to whatever it might be that leads us away from the fear of the Lord and into the role of the fool, which we talked about last week, That's what we want to avoid. And so for that reason, I'm going to deal with the overarching principle rather than the specific problem so that we can apply the wisdom of this warning constantly and broadly all throughout our lives. And there are three points that I want to draw out of this overarching warning, which highlights why this is such a foundational instruction for our lives and why it's so necessary that we heed its warnings. If we want to be wise and for life to go well. And those reasons are that the temptation to sin is desirable. The temptation to sin is daily. And the effect of sin is destructive. The temptation to sin is desirable. The temptation to sin is daily. And the effect of sin is destructive. So the first reason that this warning about being enticed by sinners into sin is so foundational is because the temptation into sin is often so desirable. And if we want to have any chance of resisting it, we must be aware of this. And the wise father knows this. And so in his warning, he acknowledges the enticing nature of a sinner's invitation to join them in sin. I mean, think about it. If sin weren't enticing, the father wouldn't need to warn his son against it, would he? 
No parent has ever had to warn their child not to jump out of an airplane without a parachute, right? That just doesn't need to be said. Uh, or, or, or no one has ever had to say to a child, make sure you don't get into a bathtub full of electric eels, right? That isn't an essential instruction for life because no one wants to do those things. Those actions aren't desirable. An invitation to them wouldn't be tempting. But sin is very different. It has an appealing nature to it that we need to be both aware of and warned against so that we can be on guard for. And the reason that sin is so enticing is because there is often temporary enjoyment to it. We need to acknowledge that. The Bible acknowledges that. Hebrews chapter 11 tells us that there is a fleeting pleasure to sin. The misuse of alcohol or drug or sex can make us feel good for a time. Gossiping and slandering about someone else does puff us up as we put them down, at least initially. Gluttony and greed do indulge our senses with a lavishness that at first is desirable and enjoyable. Whatever it may be, sin always has something about it that initially appeals to us in our flesh, that draws us in and that makes us want it. It makes us believe that it will be pleasurable and satisfying and good. Now the problem, which we'll talk about in a bit, is that in the end, it never is. Sin never delivers what it promises. But on the front end, it is always promising that it will. Sin will often seem to us desirable and alluring. And we need to be aware of this if we want any chance of resisting its enticement. And so the first reason that this warning about being enticed by sinners into sin is so foundational for wise living is because the temptation to sin is so deceptively desirable. The second reason this warning about being enticed into sin by sinners is so foundational for wise living is because the temptation towards sin is so daily present. We are facing it almost constantly. And this aspect of the warning isn't highlighted in your passage today, but it is all over the scriptures. And so I want to address it very briefly because it's crucial for us to understand it if we want to resist it. For you see, from the moment that sin entered into the world and became a part of our human nature, its temptation has been a constant companion of humanity. We see this all the way back into Genesis chapter 4, where God warned the very first family that ever lived on the earth that sin was crouching at the door and that its desire was to have them. It's always right around the corner. So you need to be aware of it. The Lord warns them. Later in 1 Peter, we're warned that the devil who tempts us to sin is like a lion on the prowl, always looking for someone to devour. Or then there's Paul in the book of Romans who, when describing the internal struggle with his own sin nature, says that he finds it to be a law, something that is always true, that any time he wants to do what is right, evil lies close at hand. The point is this. That ever since sin entered into the world, its temptation has been ever-present and constant in humanity. 
There is never a moment in our day when we are not susceptible to it. There is never a time when we can put our guard down and think, phew, don't have to worry about that anymore. It's always nearby, looking for a way to get us. Which is why Paul tells the Corinthians that if they think they are standing firm, they need to take heed lest they fall. His point being that we are never free from the temptation to sin. They are always present to us and we are always susceptible to their enticements. So we always need to be on guard. It's the second reason why this warning about being enticed into sin by sinners is so foundational. Because the the temptation into sin is daily. The final reason why this warning to not be enticed by sinners is so foundational for wise living is because in the end, if we are enticed into sin... It will lead to our destruction. That's what we see in the end of the Father's warning in verses 17 through 19. Where he says that one who runs into sin is basically setting a trap for themselves from which they will not be able to escape. And that's what sin does, isn't it? It entraps us and it ensnares us so that we can't get out of it. It always looks good at first with its promise, pleasures, but those pleasures, both in the scriptures and our experience, tell us they are fleeting. In the end, sin always leaves us worse off than it found us. And eventually, it ruins us, destroys our health, destroys our relationships, destroys our consciences, destroys our faith. Ultimately and eventually it destroys our very lives. And we see the foolishness of living this way in the Father's example of of the birds and the nets. When he says that in vain is a net spread in the sight of any bird. But these these, uh, men lie in wait for their own blood. He's saying that, that any bird of the air, if you set a trap for them right before their eyes... They won't be caught in it, right? Any simple creature or dumb beast can see the trap that's there and avoid it. But yet we rush right into sin. It's exactly what we're doing to ourselves when we run into sin. We know that sin entraps us. We can see how it ensnares us. We know that it leads to death. And yet we run into it Anyway, God couldn't have been any more clear with Adam and Eve about the forbidden fruit in the garden. He said to them, if you eat it, you will die. The destruction of sin was placed right before them. And yet they walked right into it anyway. Because of its daily desires... We do too. Over and over and over again throughout our lives. We continually fail to heed our wise Father's warning. And in the end, it always catches up to us. Such are the ways of everyone who is enticed into sin, verse 19 tells us. It takes away the life of its possessors. Maybe not immediately, 
But eventually it always does. Sin is a trap that never fails to set. Do you know that entrapment? Some of you may remember it from a past part of your life. Some of you may know that you're trapped in sin's nets right now. And you do not know how to get out of them. Some of you may be entangled in sin's nets at this very moment and you don't even realize how trapped you are just yet. This is ultimately humanity's great dilemma. We've all been trapped in sin's net, which is a terrible place to be. And the great problem of our great predicament is that if we're all caught in the same trap together, then there is no one who is outside of that trap, who's not entangled in it, that can let us out and can set us free. Which means that left to ourselves, we have no hope of getting out of sin's snare. Left to yourself, you have no hope of getting out of the predicament that you find yourself in with your sin. But this is the good news of the gospel. That God hasn't left us to ourselves. And when every one of his earthly children failed to heed his warning and became ensnared in sin's webbing, God, in his great love for us, sent a son from heaven. And unlike all of his other children, this son actually listened to his father's instructions and fully heeded his father's warnings and never once fell into the enticement of sin. We heard about it in our gospel passage this morning out of Matthew chapter 4, where even when he was offered the entire world, Jesus didn't fall into the devil's trap. But he always resisted the enticement to sin. And hence he never fell prey to its entrapping and destructive nets. And the good news for us is that from outside of sin's grasp, Jesus has the power to help us and to set us free. He has the power to set us free from the traps of sin that we've already been ensnared in. Untangling its webs from our lives. He has the power to strengthen us with his ability to resist the daily temptations that come our way so that we can say no to sin's future enticements when we face them. He has the power to change our desires in our innermost being so that we no longer are even enticed by sin's deceptive allures. And he has the ability to wipe our slate clean. So that when our Heavenly Father looks upon our lives, He doesn't see our sin or all of the times we failed to heed His warning. But He sees His perfect Son. Jesus' life ultimately has the power to completely change us. To set us free and to make us new. So that we're no longer the disobedient fool whose life is destroyed by sin. But we become the wise child whose life flourishes in the care of their heavenly Father. Jesus offers all of this. We simply need to believe that He can and will save us. 
and cry out to him for help. Church, in this first instruction from the wise father to his beloved child, he warns us about the daily desire of destructive sin. And he pleads with us not to get entrapped into its ways and enticed by its ways. This is one of the most foundational pieces of instruction that you can receive for your lives. If you want to be wise, if you want to be blessed, if you want your life to flourish, we must heed this warning. Because you simply cannot live a life of flourishing if you keep running into traps that will harm you. Now throughout the rest of the book of Proverbs, there will be much more wisdom that is built upon this foundational instruction. For example, uh, Proverbs uh, 14.12 says that there is a way that seems right to a man, but in the end, its way is death. Right? We can't really understand that wisdom until we understand this wisdom. But, or there's wisdom like Proverbs 13.20, which says that the companion of fools will suffer harm. Or Proverbs 25 to 26, which says, like a muddied spring or a polluted foundation, a polluted fountain, is a righteous man who gives way before the wicked. Right? Or, or Proverbs 22, 24, and 25, which says, Make no friendship with a wrathful man, lest you learn his ways and entangle yourself in a snare. All of those Proverbs and, and many others are built upon this foundational warning which we must first understand to not be enticed by sinners. We can't really understand all the other wisdom until we understand this foundational wisdom. So this week um, has been a foundational prohibition. Do not run into sin. Next week we're going to look at where we should run. It's the classic and ancient wisdom that there are two roads that we can take in life, which are as old as Christianity and as old as the the instruction to the people of God uh, from back in the foundation of the people of God. There is a way that leads to death and there is a way that leads to life. This week we've been reminded not to take the path that leads to death. It's good advice. So trusting in the power of of Jesus. Let us heed this warning in our lives. For God's glory and for our good. Amen.